Welcome back! It's episode 60 of The Build, only three months after episode 59. We're in our Alex Belzeal era, our Christian Thomas time, our Aaron Palaszczuk period, and our Jose Teodor chapter. How the heck are you guys? It's been way too long, way longer than I intended on being away. So what happened? Well, as it seems to be a theme with me and doing this show, I got sick over the holidays, and I stayed sick for a few weeks. And for whatever reason, whenever I get sick, it just goes immediately to the things that make my voice sound reasonable to listen to. <laughs> so I was sick for most of January, and then February came, the beginning of February came around, and I was... And then, you know, Monaghan gets traded, and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna, I have to go away for the weekend, spend some time with family, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to record. And then, of course, on that trip, I get sick again, and that kept me from recording for another few weeks. Um, on top of all that, work has just been taking away too much of my life, and I'm working on getting that back. <laughs> Not to get too personal, but when your boss unceremoniously gets fired and no one replaces them, you kind of lose a bit of your personal life for a while. It's just something that happens. With all of that said, if you've been waiting for an episode, I'm sorry it's taken so long. And I hope to get these out with more regularity moving forward. But, but this doesn't pay the bills, and it's just me back here. <laughs> I think I get into a point with this where I sort of like spiral, oh, I haven't done a show in forever, and then I start to feel bad about it. And I do feel bad, but I shouldn't feel as bad as I have been feeling. Um, if I get sick or get busy, the show just isn't going to happen, and it's unfortunate, but it's a side effect of doing this show solo, and I don't want to do it any other way. Um, I have full creative control of the show as it is, and I like it that way, um, and I think that's, that's why it works the way that it works. But I'm back. We're back. Uh, I'm already actually on top of this episode. I'm already working on the next one. So hopefully, you know, things just kind of flow from there. Um, again, if you've waited a long time, I'm glad you're still with me. So we've got a ton to catch up on. So let's just get started. On February 2nd, after Vancouver traded for Elias Lindholm, Montreal capitalized on having the best remaining rental center available. Trading Sean Monahan to the Winnipeg Jets in a first, for a first-round pick, not and, that would be bad. That was the first Monahan trade. Um, <laughs> sent Sean Monahan to the Winnipeg Jets for a first-round pick in 2024, and a conditional third-round pick in 2027. Aside from, you know, 2027 being a made-up year that will never exist, uh, Montreal only, re only receives that draft pick if Winnipeg wins the 2024 Stanley Cup. Um, when Montreal re-signed Monaghan last summer, this was always the most likely outcome. If he stayed healthy and he was healthy at the deadline, he was going to bring the Canadians a haul. Um, Ken Hughes takes advantage of a shrinking supply of quality center rentals. Um, and he does a nice job getting the Canadians yet another first round pick. Um, I know one of the things that was going around after the trade was, is Monaghan worth a first-round pick? And it was certainly, that conversation was certainly taking place in the lead-up to the trade as well. Um, as I was compiling the notes for this episode, I looked up and Sean Monaghan had a natural hat-trick in the first period against Calgary. 
Um, so I will try to avoid being a prisoner of the moment in analyzing this trade. I think a guy like Monahan, um, his perceived value is always going to be higher than his actual value. And that's not to say he's a he's not he has no value on the ice. I think he does. He's I mean he on this Canadians team, he scored a bunch of points playing on their power play. He scored a bunch of points at five on five. Um, but he's a well-respected player who plays center, wins a ton of faceoffs, and is a pure rental in the sense that teams aren't on the hook for anything past this year, for which for a player like Monaghan, who has had a hard time staying healthy in his career, that's a big deal. And that one-year deal, the remainder of it, um, comes with a cap hit of $1.985 million. So prorating that to what is actually pay- owed to him in, you know, the 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 prorated cap hit. He's his his effect on a team's salary cap is much lower than that cap hit. Um, with all of those things being taken into account, he becomes an incredibly valuable rental for a team looking to make a deep playoff run, like these Jets are, which is surprising because like we went from this summer them kind of being in a bind to trade, or at least what we thought was a bind, to trade one of their, their top players in Pierre-Luc Dubois to probably being the better team at the end of that trade after seeing Pierre-Luc Dubois struggle in L.A. and L.A. struggle as a team. And now these Jets are trying to capitalize on a Western Conference that isn't all that it's got some big, some heavy hitters at the top, but it isn't a particularly deep conference. So it's good. I think it's a great deal for Winnipeg to trade a first-round pick, get a guy who can play power play minutes, who can play middle six um, center, who can win big face-offs for you. I think it's, an easy, it's easy to spin it as a win for the Jets because it's an, it's an investment in this team, right? It's, a, it's, it's the GM, and it's Kevin Sheveldayoff in Winnipeg saying, I believe this team can go and win a Stanley Cup. I'm going to give them more assets to be able to do that. So I think it's easy to spin this as a win for the Jets. Would I have paid a first to get Monaghan if I was the Jets? I don't really have a ton of reasons not to. I don't think the Jets were looking to throw away their first round pick so early, but once Lindholm went from Calgary to Vancouver... Winnipeg probably felt they needed to make a move sooner rather than later, not only in the shrinking market of center available centers, but in the fact that Vancouver is a team that they might have to meet at some point on their way through the Stanley Cup playoffs. But on the Canadian side of things, for Hughes to get a first this far out from the trade deadline is a massive win for the future of this team. Because, you know, the closer you get to the, 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 the trade deadline, there's there's always chances that you don't end up getting the value that you would want for a player because Kent Hughes, for all of the things that I enjoy about him, he does seem to have a value for each of his players and he doesn't move on it. We've seen that work out in the sense that he's gotten the prices that he wants for certain players. But, you know, one thing this time of year that I'm always reminded of is that 20 was that the 2014 Canadians that the, the, the team that went to the Eastern Conference final against the Rangers and Price got hurt. They they acquired Thomas Vanek at like the 11th hour. 
They acquired him at like the very last minute of the trade deadline. And I believe the main components of that deal were Sebastian Kohlberg, who I don't believe played NHL games, and a second round pick, who I believe the whoever the Islanders took with that didn't end up playing NHL games. I could be wrong, but at any rate, the, the return that they got for him was not good because they overplayed their hand. So for for Hughes, could he have maybe gotten a third round pick that wasn't conditional out of this if he waited a little bit longer? Maybe. But maybe teams weren't really willing to give up that first round pick until Calgary flipped uh, Lindholm. And then teams went, okay, well, we have to make a move now. And I'm sure as soon as that trade happened, Kent Hughes' phone just blew up. So it's a big win for the Canadians. They get another first-round pick. Um, I, I want to place this in a, in a tier trade list first, in our, in our tier list of Kent Hughes trades, and then I want to talk a little bit more about first-round picks that the Canadians have gotten. So Monaghan, I think, is going to go right next to the original Monaghan trade in the B tier of this tier list, um, which you can find on my Twitter and Blue Sky accounts to review at your leisure. Um, but I think it's right there. I think that the value was great. The experience of having Monaghan here was great. And getting another first-round pick is great. Um, so your final line on Sean Monaghan as a Montreal Canadian, 74 games, 19 goals, 33 assists for 52 points. Close to, close to over an 82-game season, close to a 60-point player for the Canadians. That's pretty good. A really likable guy. I will be rooting for him in Winnipeg. Um, it was very cool to see him wear a Habs sweater for a little, bo- a little while. I hope maybe someday he can come back and get experience uh, and get to experience some playoff hockey at the Bell Center because I really do like this guy. I'm, I'm, rooting, I'm rooting for him. The redemption arc that was here for a guy who his reputation became one of being injured to now a guy who was traded for a first-round pick. Um, I hope I hope he gets to write a little bit of a Sean Monahan legend in the the playoffs here. Uh, so one last note, like I talked about on this trade, Kent Hughes has now acquired five first round picks from other teams since taking over. The Toffoli trade to Calgary, the Romanoff trade to the New York Islanders. I am counting that one because technically that that was two trades. It was Romanoff to the Islanders for pick I think thirteen, and then pick thirteen and something else to. Uh, Chicago for Kirby Doc. The Ben Sherratt trade to Florida that netted the Canadians a first round pick. Monaghan from Calgary and Monaghan to Winnipeg each got Canadians the Canadians a first round pick. So three of those picks we've already seen, right? Um, the Toffoli one, the Romanoff one, and the uh, Ben Sherratt one. Of those three picks that have come in drafts that have already happened, Kent Hughes has only used one of them to select a player at the draft. Calgary, um, that pick from the Toffoli deal was used on Philip Mechard. That's the only player that he's drafted at that point when, when acquiring a first-round pick from another team. The Romanov pick went immediately to Chicago for Kirby Doc, and the Sherratt pick went to Colorado for Alex Newhook. So... As a reminder, since it's been a while, the point of this show is to figure out how Kent Hughes and Jeff Gordon are building a winner. So far, they've done a good job stockpiling future assets, 
And it seems like what they like to do with those firsts, rather than acquire a player on the draft floor, you know, a, a prospect on the draft floor with that first round pick, they seem to want to move them for more NHL ready prospects or NHL ready young players. Uh, it's something to consider as the team enters the offseason in a few months. Um, and with two more picks, two more first round picks to use. Um, both the ones that we've acquired from from Sean Monahan have not been used in any capacity yet. The one from Calgary has all of these conditions on it that I still uh, am not going to figure out. Just tell someone will tell me when the Canadians are going to pick in the first round with that the 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 pick they got from that trade. And the one from Winnipeg we know is going to be this this summer. It's just a matter of whether or not the Canadians will trade it for another NHL ready player. Or if the Canadians will pick a player with that with that pick, um, it's just something to keep in mind as we head into the off season in just a few months. Uh, speaking of young NHL talent, though, how about that new first line? For the first time in what feels like an eternity, the Canadians might have an honest to god top line, uh, which people are re- referring to it as the boy genius line, which I really love. Um, that line, of course, being Nick Suzuki, Cole Caulfield, and Uri Slavkovsky, it's been dominant. They've just been really, really good. Um, Suzuki is hovering just below a point-per-game pace. Caulfield has really rounded out his game to be an offensive threat outside of his shot. And also in the background, Nick Suzuki has, you know, he's regained some of his offense, but he's also maintained his defensive play. Uh, he's he's been a very strong defensive force, which that line needs to be in order to play top minutes. And of course, as everyone has noticed, something has just clicked for Slavkovsky over the last few months. As I'm recording this, he's on a franchise record point streak for a teenager at eight games. He's also got 22 points in his last 24 games. The point streak is is what it is. It's, you know, it's 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 only 8 games, which doesn't really seem like a lot, but the fact that this franchise hasn't had a a, a teenager who's done that is it means Slavkovsky's doing something impressive. The second point total there is the one that gets me the most. Like 24 games is a, is a significant portion of an NHL season. He's got 22 points in those. Considering in the 55 games that he's played total, he has 30 points. In the last 24, he has all but eight of those points. Something has clicked with him. Um, And at 12 goals, he needs just eight more in his last 27 games to have his first 20-goal season. And I think he clears that easily. What's been truly special about Slavkovsky's development curve is that it seems like keeping him in the NHL was truly the right move. And I will, you know, I, I will, I'll eat crow on that very easily. I was very loud about sending him to Laval or keeping him, or at the beginning of all of this, keeping him in Europe to develop out of the Canadian spotlight. But it seems like his struggles at the NHL level have really allowed for him to, to learn the NHL game better than if he played in Laval or back in Finland. I just saw Laval play in Hartford last weekend. And the AHL is a very good hockey league, but you can tell watching it, it is not the National Hockey League. And I know that seems silly to say, because of course it's not. But the way that they play is not, 
it's not it's not the same game. Um, you know, there's a lot more mistakes. There's a lot more time and space for um, you know, for the top talent to 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 create offense. In the NHL, that doesn't exist. So what Slavkovsky has had to learn, he's had to learn while in the constraints of playing in the NHL. There's only one place where he can learn to play at the NHL level, and that's the NHL. So to the Canadians, you know, uh, to their decision to keep him in the NHL, I think it's been successful. I think they've, they've really nailed that decision. There's the one uh, Nick Suzuki quote going around that I've really loved where, you know, Suzuki acknowledges the calls for Slavkovsky to shoot more, but Suzuki said he just wants him to make more plays. And that really seems to be where this breakout has come from. Yes, he is shooting more. He's getting more goals. He's getting more shooting opportunities. But only if the shot is the better play. He's also making a ton of really great passes that set his teammates up for scoring opportunities. Um. David St. Louis of Elite Prospects wrote an article for EP Rinkside um, and made an accompanying video about Slavkovsky's mini breakout. Uh, Hattie Kalakesh uh, also, at a, very, at a very similar time, released a video detailing Slavkovsky's breakout. Both of the, all three of these uh, pieces of content are um, well worth your time and money because EP Rinkside does, you know, it's a it's a monthly subscription which you should subscribe to because it is worth your time and money. Um and I encourage you to read these things because you know the, the way that the, the way I look at them is I go in with my thoughts about how I see this player and then I read and watch other people um understand those concepts better than I do and and put them in terms that are so easy and concrete to understand. Um you know, I'll I'll talk about David St. Louis video um, first because the the part that you know we keep hearing about him is his playmaking is better than his his goal scoring, and that you know his scanning needed to improve, and that's what what David St. Louis talks about. You know, he's he's going into into board battles and he's going into plays with the concept that he needs to look around for his next pass. He needs to understand, okay, once I get this puck, where am I going to go with it? You know, he showed a video of him going into a board battle and constantly looking over his shoulders for an outlet pass so that if and when he wins that board battle, he knows where to go with the puck. He's creating a battle on the boards or he's taking that battle to the front of the net. Because he's so big and because he's so skilled, teams have to respect that and put a defender on him. Um what he's learning what we're seeing though is that he's not just like parking himself in front of the net when he knows a teammate of his has a lane to the net he backs off and lets the teammate take the puck to the net um his hockey sense has really bloomed over the last few months and it makes sense considering that throughout this you know this Lukowski development process from pre-draft to today scouting folks have always liked his playmaking and passing game a whole lot more than his goal scoring or his shot and he's got a good shot. We saw it in that Ranger game. The 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 one that he beat Jonathan Quick on, just coming down the <laughs> down you know the the slot and ripping it past him onto the in the inside the post. Like that's he's got an NHL caliber shot. But now that we're starting to see him become the player he can be, you can see why player who watch why people who watched him play loved his playmaking. And now that he's playing with talented players 
who are playing their natural positions, those skills of Slavkovsky's are easier to display and take advantage of. I'm not going to use this as an opportunity to take another unfair shot at Josh Anderson. I'll take a fair shot at Josh Anderson. He's difficult to play with because he's very unpredictable. You know, he's going to take the puck and skate it around in a circle for, for, for 10 seconds. You know, Suzuki and Caulfield are very predictable players. It's very easy for someone like Sapkowski, who's still trying to learn the NHL game, to step into that line and play with them. Watching Slavkovsky turn smart, sharp hockey sense into offense has been one of the most enjoyable parts of this season. I don't know what else comes close, honestly. Um, there are obviously some people who don't watch the Canadians on a nightly basis, who are still throwing out the bus tag because the numbers aren't video game numbers that we associate with first overall picks. But I feel pretty confident in saying the idea of him being a bust is complete nonsense in every sense of the word. The, the 2022 draft did not have a McDavid or a Matthews or a Bedard. There was genuine debate as to who should go first overall. Most of us thought it would be Shane Wright, but Montreal obviously did their homework and took home a player that is going to be in the top tier of that draft class, which is really all, you, from a draft class like that, that's all you can really hope for. This is all obviously really great for Slavkowski and that first line, obviously. But it, and I, I, I say this because I, I've tried to come up with a better way of saying it and I couldn't. It means that this front office might know what they're doing, <laughs> which is funny to think out loud because of course they should know what they're doing. But, that first, that draft pick, when they walked up there in 2022 and they took Slavkovsky first overall, it took a lot of people by surprise. And I think this development leap by Slavkovsky has bought a lot of faith in the hockey operations of the Montreal Canadiens. Because honestly, like before this run, the, the heat on Nick Bobrov was real. Especially after the very last draft class. And we were worried the Canadians hadn't learned anything about player development since Bergevin was in charge, since Bergevin's whole thing was sink or swim. You threw them into the NHL, and if they couldn't do it, well, they just couldn't do it. It's not on us. Now it, it seems like we've completely flipped. We've changed course. The, the, Bob Roth seems like he might be able to pick out talent, and the Canadians might be able to develop top players under the guidance of Marty St. Louis and Adam Nicholas. Like... Now, now that the Slavkovsky thing has, has worked out the way that it has, I look at a pick like Florian Jacki, right? And I think he was a fourth rounder the year he was picked. And I wonder, like, did the, like, it doesn't make me think, okay, Jacki is going to be great. He's going to be, you know, an NHL forward. But it does give me pause as to, you know, well, let's, let's let them cook. Let's see what they had there. Maybe there's something there still. That now, because of the way they've, they've, they obviously viewed Slavkovsky in his draft year and developed him, maybe there's something to be made out of a player like Florian Jacki. Slavkovsky was always going to be a microcosm of the Canadians' ability to draft and develop prospects because the Canadians, you know, for better or worse, made it that way. They heard all the noise with the draft in their own building. And they heard all the people on the way in talking about how they should pick 
Shane Wright. People were wearing Shane Wright jerseys. And they heard all that noise, and they walked up on, on stage, and they said, we're taking our guy. And the next year, with a ton of noise around a more stacked draft, they walked up there at fifth overall, and they took their guy and David Reinbacher. Yeah, it seems like they left some talent on the board there. But my worries about them being able to develop Reinbacher into a top-pairing defenseman are nearly non-existent at this point. And I only say nearly because I really hope the absolute tire fire that Cloten has been in Switzerland uh, doesn't ruin this, this year for David Reinbacher. And I hope the Canadians do everything in their power to get him over here as fast as they possibly can. All of this to say, I don't know what Slavkovsky's ceiling is, and I don't really know that it's reasonable to talk about him as a point-per-game player at any point in his career. But with that said, let's, let's say Suzuki is a 75-point guy. He's currently on pace for about that. And let's say Caulfield is a 65-point guy, 60 to 65-point guy with 40-goal potential. And let's say Slaff is safely a 65-point guy. And let's say Kirby Doc is a 60-point guy. That's four 60-point players for the Montreal Canadiens. We don't, that's not, that won't have like the jaw-dropping 100-point players that like, you know, we would have wanted, of course. And that's not to close the door on the Canadians using some of their assets to acquire them. But the last time the Montreal Canadiens had four players with at least 60 points was 1995-96 with Pierre Turgeon, 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 that was the, the Connecticut in me coming up, uh, Vincent Domfus, Mark Recchi, and Martin Ruchinski. We would be seeing something that we haven't seen in nearly 30 years. The one I'm least convinced of at this point is, is Doc, but that's really just because he hasn't played. I think 60 points for Doc is still safe, but we'll obviously see next year. So if you have those four guys who can put up 60-plus points, and then you package some of the futures you have left, like all of the, the defensive talent you have coming up, and these first-round picks that you have in the future, and you acquire a, a true first-line elite star at the NHL level, which is a possible thing that teams can do. And we've talked about how the Vegas Golden Knights are kind of a good, uh, a good measuring stick for this version of the Montreal Canadiens. Suddenly, this roster becomes a contender. Goaltending in the future may need another, another body, but like genuinely, genuinely, you, you add an elite talent to four 60-point players and the, the defense core of David Reinbacher and Caden Gooley and uh, Lane Hudson and uh, Bogdan Konyushkov over in the KHL looks like something. This is a roster. Like This is a, this is a capital R roster. So it's been it's been a big few months for Slefkovsky, and that makes it a few a, a big few months for this hockey team, for this organization who staked so much on this player being the guy they thought he'd be, he'd be, and Slefkovsky is rewarding them for that belief and investment, which is really awesome to see. Uh, and let's go from something that's awesome to see to something that we've been seeing since the beginning of the season and has not changed. And that is the three-headed goalie monster. 
Uh, Montreal still has three goalies, and it really feels like they're just content playing out the season like this for whatever reason. The only difference since the start, the season started is that I think Caden Primo has likely passed Jake Allen on the depth chart. Um, you know, it's, it's tough to, to see Allen as the backup option when um, he's the only goaltender with a save percentage under 900. Uh, Allen has a 366 goal, six goals against and an 894 save percentage. Um, even when Montembeau's extension kicks in next season, Allen will still be the most expensive goalie on the Canadiens roster, assuming they don't trade him between now and then. It's hard to imagine this being resolved this season because I can't imagine a team trades for Jake Allen right now. And I don't think the value on Primo is something the Canadians would rather have than Primo. I don't think that the trade market for Caden Primo is, is, you know, more beneficial to the Canadians than having Caden Primo. On the other side, though, it's, it's hard to see this, you know, continuing beyond this season. Um, Primo is eligible for arbitration not after this season, but after the following season. It's probably in Montreal's best interest to move on from Allen and get Primo the starts he needs to determine whether or not he's worth keeping as the backup. But it's impossible to see any benefit of keeping all three of these goalies other than you are afraid of losing Primo for nothing on waivers and you don't want to retain on Jake Allen's contract. You don't want to trade you know, Allen away and have to retain, you know, past, you know, next season. We'll, we'll get into some of the retention stuff because I, I do want to talk about that because it's important in, in analyzing the rest of the trade deadline. But I've said it in the past, the Allen extension was not Kent Hughes's best piece of work as GM. It just wasn't. It, it, made, a, it made very little sense when it happened. But the dollar amount and term have restricted what the Canadians can do with their goaltending. His deal is so long and so expensive that they have to carry three goalies because they can't trade Jake Allen. And because they can't trade Jake Allen and they can't waive Caden Primo, they have to keep Caden Primo on the roster. So I don't expect this to change before the end of the season. I know there was a tweet that went out from some barstool dork about the Canadians and the Avs. Uh, working on a deal to send Jake Allen to Colorado, and maybe that comes to pass. But I feel like if you're if you're Joe Sackick and the Avalanche, there are better options out there than Jake Allen. And as soon as that that tweet went out, all of the you know real insiders basically threw cold water on it immediately. Um, so I don't think this will change. I think they're going to finish the year with three goalies, and then next. And then in the offseason, they'll figure out what they want to do next. I just, I don't, I don't see an end to this in sight. But there are some decisions that can't wait until the offseason, and those are the decisions to be made ahead of our trade deadline on March 8th. Um, Montreal doesn't have much in the way of rentals. In fact, after the Monaghan trade, they have one pure rental left in Tanner Pearson. The good news is, because the Canadians did not retain salary on Monaghan, they have one salary retention spot left for Tanner Pearson. If the Canadians eat half of Pearson's remaining salary, he can be acquired with a cap hit of $1.625 million. He's got 10 points in 36 games, so even if the Canadians 
are able to retain half of his salary. I can't see teams falling over each other to, to get him. He just seems like a guy who gets traded in the last hour before the deadline for like a third round pick. Other than the lone UFA, the Habs have, they have a few RFAs that might be moved, but I think will mo- like, I think, uh, I, I would be surprised, honestly, if one of them got moved. Uh, Jesse Ullinen is the only RF- RFA at forward, and I cannot imagine the Canadians would want a lot in return for him. Uh, he plays on the fourth line, or he doesn't play at all. He plays on the Frankenstein second power play unit. That makes no sense. Um, he's played 43 games this season, and he has not scored since November. Very much seems like a player the Canadians are going to walk away from this summer as an RFA, so they might as well get something of value from him if they can. It's funny, the last episode of the show was called Free Ulanen, and it turns out uh, Free Ulanen at this point would be trading him to another team. Uh, on defense, the only RFA is Arbor Jackai, and unless someone backs up the truck, Montreal is probably going to stand pat with him and work on an extension. Is that a good idea? That is a discussion for the next episode of this show. Uh, I do intend on going into this a little bit more in detail, but didn't seem like the right place here. Um, outside of rentals, are other trades likely? It's tough to know. The trade market has been quiet since the Monaghan trade, and the Flames are rightfully taking up a lot of the coverage because of the situation they're in. It seems like, it seems like everyone's kind of watching the Flames to see what they do and then making their moves accordingly. Every year there's one of those teams where you're watching them, okay, what are they going to do if they move this guy and this guy? What, what's our plan next? It really, it feels like this is the, this is the Flames year to, to take up all the oxygen in the room. Um, I keep seeing folks talk about trading David Savard and retaining salary, but that means you can't trade Tanner Pearson. And I know what that sounds like is, well, you can't trade Tanner Pearson without retaining salary. You would have to, you would have to just trade the whole cap hit. I don't think anybody is acquiring a, th- a three-plus million dollar Tanner Pearson. So that... If you are retaining salary in a David Savard trade before the end of this season, I don't think you are trading Tanner Pearson. Because you would then need to get a third team involved to eat salary. And at that point, like, what is is the return even worth? Like, why would another team do that for, like, a fifth-round pick? It doesn't really make sense. If you can trade Savard without retention and get something valuable, by all means, go for it. But I, I don't think you can trade Savard this year without retention. I, I just don't see it happening. And plus, next year, you can trade Savard as a pure rental and get just as much for him uh, as if you kept him, you know, as, as if you traded him on July 1st. Like, think about Edmondson last summer. Montreal got a third and a seventh from Washington from a player who is objectively worse than David Savard. I think David Savard is a perfect summer option uh, for a few reasons. Uh, His cap hit next season is $3.5 million, but the actual dollars owed after his bonus is paid is only $2.3 million. So a team with cap space who wants to watch the actual dollars spent might bite on David Savard at this point. And I know they're under new ownership, but doesn't that sound like the Ottawa Senators? We know that that the Senators are after, quote, good pros is what the, 
the insiders keep saying, and David Savard would fit that bill. And we happen to know that the new senior vice president of hockey operations, Dave Poulin, loves him some David Savard. He loved David Savard on all those broadcasts. Ottawa will have the cap space to get him, and Montreal probably lets Savard go to a team who is hoping to take the next step. I think Savard and Ottawa makes way too much sense for it to not happen on July 1st. So, like, who's left to trade, right? Like, there's a logjam on defense, so that's why my brain went to David Savard just as everybody else's did, but, like, it, it might just end up being a guy like Jordan Harris, who it seems like has fallen out of the, not fallen out of the rotation because he's still very much part of that defensive rotation, but it does seem like he, the, he might have the lowest value to the Montreal Canadiens for whatever reason. People keep talking about a Mike Matheson trade. I just think he makes too much money to trade midseason. So a team would need to have, and he's not particularly, this season anyway, he's not having the greatest defensive season. His offensive numbers are great. And if you were looking for a power play quarterback, you could do worse than, than Mike Matheson. But the problem is the money owed after this season. So the Canadians are, are somewhat healthier at this trade de- deadline than they were last year, but they don't have a ton of pieces that jump off the page as obvious trade candidates. If Montreal is active around the trade deadline, it probably means they're making smaller moves. Maybe just to help the Laval Rocket make the playoffs. I know they're currently just on the outside looking in, because I believe in their division it's the top five teams that make the playoffs. Um, it's, a best of fir- it's a best of three series in the first round, and I believe they're sixth um, just behind the Belleville Senators. So the, the, maybe they're going to grab some AHL help to go make a run uh, down there in Laval. So unless the Canadians are, are part of bigger moves that haven't really been reported on yet, maybe a team that misses out on some of the, the, the pure rentals circles back to the Canadians as a way to get a, a piece that will help them for two runs. I, my prediction is another quiet deadline. I know the, the, you know, the, the folks who run these programs, the, the, the full day broadcasts are always telling you how, how busy it's going to be and how there's tons of chatter. And then we get to trade deadline day and nothing happens. And every year we keep falling for it. Um, I, I, I predict a, a quiet deadline for the Montreal Canadiens. I don't see them being a, a huge player this time. Next year, though, and that's a, this will be a conversation for later, lots of restrict, uh, are unrestricted free agents available for the Canadians to trade as rentals, assuming that they are out of the playoff picture, which I think they will be. And that's it. Episode 60 is in the books. That's all I've got. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm already working on the next episode, so it won't be long until we chat again. But thanks for tuning back in after all this time. It means a lot to me, and I'm sorry it took so long to get back here. Uh, if you like the show, tell someone, about, tell someone about it. Share it on your social media of choice. These are the best ways you can help the content that you like. Um, if you want more of me, you can follow me on Twitter and Blue Sky at Maybe It's Ian. Um, the build is available almost everywhere you find podcasts, but please note, if you use Google Podcasts, that app is going away in April of 2024. You can migrate all of your podcast subscriptions to YouTube Music by going into the Google Podcast app and tapping Export Subscriptions on the alert banner at the top of the screen. Or if you want to use this as a chance to move your subscription to another app, I have the link 
to the show's profile in the description. Links to all the other apps will be there. Uh, the build is also on TikTok. Head there for trailers to the episodes and some other fun bits from time to time. And that's it. The music you heard at the beginning of the show and are hearing right now is Inside by Fred Mug. Check the link in the description to head over to his Bandcamp page for the rest of his stuff. Thanks, guys. Be well. Talk soon. Bye.